Hello and welcome to History Respond. I'm your host, Bob Whitaker. Today's episode considers Far Cry 2, published by Ubisoft in 2008. Far Cry 2 takes place in a fictional Central African state undergoing a civil war. Conflict features two warring factions. The two sides are supplied by an American arms dealer named the Jackal. The player character's mission is to find and kill the Jackal, presumably to stop the war. The player character is a foreign mercenary, and in their pursuit of the Jackal, they can take up side missions including assassination, arms trading, and seek and destroy missions. Since its release in 2008, Far Cry 2 has become something of a critical darling among game journalists and scholars. This is thanks in large part to the game's mechanics, which emphasizes an immersion through a lack of persistent game HUD and by forcing the player to deal with problems not typically seen in first-person shooters, including weapon jamming and injury management. Similarly, the game is celebrated for its open world, which allows for moments of emergent gameplay and storytelling thanks to the dynamics of enemy AI, as well as the in-game environment. Despite the game's reputation, critics very rarely consider Far Cry 2's setting, and in particular, the nature of post-colonial conflict in Africa. In order to delve into the setting, I've invited Professor Charlie Thomas onto the show. Charlie is an associate professor and department chair for strategy and security studies for the United States Air Force's Air Command and Staff College. Prior to this post, he held an appointment in the International Division of the Department of History at West Point. He is an African historian who received his PhD at the University of Texas at Austin and has written extensively on East African history, civil military relations on the continent, and the social construction of African militaries. Charlie is also the managing editor of the Journal of African Military History, a journal which he helped to found. Charlie, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks, Bob. It's fantastic to be here. I was excited when this game first came out. I'm excited to, to, to actually have you host me and to be able to talk about this. I really appreciate it. Um, and, and thank you for the kind introduction. Great. Yeah. And I know that you've got a statement that you've got to read out to our listeners. I do. And, and, and it is not certainly a hostage sort of sort of situation. Um, but because of, as you noted in your in your kind introduction, uh, I do work for the United States Department of Defense uh, for the Air Force. And as such, um, in this case, I have to offer the following disclaimer. Uh, the opinions and discussion that I'm about to to offer are mine and mine alone, and they do not reflect the official policy or beliefs of the Department of Defense, the United States Air Force, or even the United States government as a whole. Uh, to put simply, these are my opinions and my opinions alone. All right. Well, uh, hostage situation averted. Thank you for that <laughs> disclaimer. Right. Uh, and I'll, yeah. And I'll just jump into the questions here. Um, so Far Cry 2 is set in 2008 in a Central African state undergoing a civil war. The civil war is marked by endemic, inescapable violence, is fed by the presence of arms dealers, foreign mercenaries, diamond smuggling, and a lack of intervention by the international community. This representation of turmoil certainly fits in with the popular Western imagination regarding post-colonial Africa. But I'm wondering what you make of this depiction. Do these sorts of depictions have it right, or are they part of a larger problem of misrepresenting life in post-colonial Africa? I'm going to give a very, very stereotypical uh, academic answer where the it's honestly yes and no to a degree. Um, now, in terms of the actual conflict that we're seeing here with with the various elements that you've listed, like we have 
absolutely seen post-colonial conflicts that fit these these parameters. Um, I, in fact, if if one was to actually just take this game and and really kind of scrub the actual names that are given, uh, this would fit almost archetypically into kind of the ragged wars that happened in the civil wars in Liberia, which began in mm-hmm. 1989, and then in Sierra Leone. And, and with both of these, they featured basically every one of these elements. Um, Sierra Leone specifically had diamond smuggling. Uh, you see popular depictions, a popular depiction of that in the movie Blood Diamond that's actually set in the Sierra Leone Civil War. Mm-hmm. Um, in Liberia, whereas there's, there's really not a, a, a diamond market, uh, there's a lot of discussion about um, the role of Firestone and the rubber plantations that were there. And these really were these, these very chaotic conflicts that we're seeing here, where there's sort of an entire breakdown of, of state control. Um, in fact, in uh, the Sierra Leone Civil War, you actually see the, the coining of a, term, of a term called Sobels, uh, S-O-B-E-L-S, um, which is a portmanteau of uh, soldiers and rebels, where you actually have the soldiers who initially had been fighting the rebels sort of joining them or making common cause at times and becoming an independent actor on, independent actor on their own. And so you really do see this continuous, this continuing endemic violence. Um, you see uh, sort of this chaos and sort of this almost loss of kind of greater political goals from the violence in many mm-hmm. cases. Um, and then you also see elements of, of uh, some of these same elements, um, although not in such a complete package, in other conflicts that happened uh, in the post-colonial era uh, and the post-Cold War era in Africa. Um, The Somali civil wars, uh, which began in 1991 with the collapse of the Siad Bar government, uh, which most Americans will will mostly know through the the movie Black Hawk Down, Mm -hmm. uh, features a lot of these. You end up, uh, you have elements of this that also pop up in the two Congo Wars, one which lasts 96 to 97, the other one which is 1998 to 2003, which I'll revisit later in our discussion. With each of these, you have pieces of this. And so the, the thing is, is these sort of, at least the depiction as it's shown certainly has has resonance. Uh, these these uh, these conflicts have occurred. They, in many cases, do have these elements. Now, this is where we actually get into the no portion, and there's there's several sort of layers of peeling back on how this is is part of the larger problem in misrepresenting life in post-colonial Africa. Mm. Um, the first, and this is just me picking, uh, kind of being a nitpicking uh, scholar, is that whereas, yes, we do have these sort of larger, chaotic, collapsing state conflicts on the continent, these are honestly very, very much um, just in the in terms of the actual conflicts, uh, a distinct subcategory. Um, there, mm. there are interstate conflicts. There are um, regular militaries that that behave in regular military behavior and that sort of thing. But, but really, if we want to look at this in in, in setting that aside and looking at this more holistically as an educator on Africa, it's, this is definitely part of the larger problem of misrepresenting life in post-colonial Africa. In that. Africa itself is well. There's there's a joke amongst Africanists that that Africa is a country as it tends mm-hmm. to be represented to the broader world. There's just a continent with no borders, and and one event happening there is happening everywhere. And there's there's no differentiation whether you're talking about Guinea or South Africa. Um, and and honestly, this this is the heart of much of the misrepresentation in that this 
just to begin with, this this is a massive continent. Given just land mass alone, you can fit, depending on how you divide them up, anywhere from three to five of the other continents within the land mass of Africa. Yeah. It, it has half a dozen half a dozen different climatic zones. You know, if you actually look at sort of the cultural and social structures that exist across the continent, it's just it's just a massive amount of diversity. The issue is, is what tends to break through the popular imagination, whether in news reports that we get uh, on what's going on in Africa or in popular depictions. Again, Blood Diamond, Black Hawk Down and the like. This is the depiction we're given. Honestly, these are if those are the stories being told. It's hard to blame folks for thinking that this is an undifferentiated, endemic, endemically violent, you know, area. But mm-hmm. these are very, very specific, regional, and in fact, oftentimes constrained within a single state or slightly crossing state borders, conflicts that are happening in very distinct contexts in very distinct portions of time. Mm-hmm. At the same time that you have, say, for example, the Congo Wars going on, you have approximately 80% of the continent that is experiencing worst mild violence, and in many cases, just very pacific, normal life. Um, But the the simple thing is, is uh, there's no news program that says, oh, well, it's another year of peace and stability in Botswana, which they've had since independence. And so, uh, simply put, uh, on the one hand, these depictions, while they are very much based on and, and very much fit the pattern of, of events that have happened on the continent, they are by far the exception, just they're not necessarily reported that way. Yeah. Uh, so the next question comes in from one of our Patreon patrons. Uh, this uh, patron is David Schroeder. And he asked the following, how much were African post-colonial conflicts like the one depicted in Far Cry 2 influenced by Cold War ideologies? And were these ideologies more important than pre-existing ethno-cultural divides? What I would say is that while Africans, especially in post-colonial and specifically in post, uh, and then eventually into post-Cold War, were aware of the Cold War ideologies, they, I would say, rarely penetrated beyond uh, a, a very sort of elite class, mm. um, either leaders of countries or leaders of opposition, and. Oftentimes, these well, there's a, a very, very genuine question that has to, that that can be posed of, of how genuine were these ideo- were these ideologies held? Actually, watched your watched the history respond on uh, the Call of Duty Black Ops one and two and the discussion of mm-hmm. Jonas Savimbi, and I think this is actually a really, really good example here where you have this sort of uh, elite figure who's very well educated and who's very well uh, and is very well aware of these ideologies, but who finds himself a very changeable figure. He describes himself as a Marxist and as a Maoist, but very quickly is is happy to play the role of the uh, uh, Christian doctor fighting for the freedom of his people against mm-hmm. the Marxists when it serves kind of a cynical purpose of getting outside aid. And so, what we often see especially during the Cold War, is is these sort of African elites kind of cynically deploying ideologies to for for basically favor or aid, economic or military, during the Cold War itself. Actually what we end up seeing is with the end of the Cold War, and that's in the post-Cold War moment that we see a lot of these more chaotic conflicts sort of sort of erupt, is we actually see 
if not an abandonment of them, at least sort of an abandonment of the pretense that they're that they're sort of uh, uh, genuinely held. Angola, which has been a, a, a Marxist country under the MPLA this entire time, just sort of shrugs its shoulders and continues saying we're a Marxist country as they really enter the global oil market. And these often become much more signifiers. You have the ANC in South Africa, which has sort of a Marxist roots and is, is happy to kind of hold on to that, but really uses it more as a signification that they are that they are a revolutionary group that has fought for their freedom, that they fought mm. against this sort of conservative uh, uh, apartheid South African government. And honestly, the reason I keep kind of harping on how these are sort of an elite project, we rarely see them really filter down past that. You'll see rhetoric, you'll see discussions during the Cold War. Um, but outside of a few very individual examples, it really seems it really seems like ideology is not necessarily what's holding these groups together. Even in the more ardent groups, such as the uh, Eritrean People's Liberation Front, which which takes on a sort of Maoist cast at times, you rarely see people really arguing that this is about kind of a, a worldwide socialist revolution. This is about a, a free Eritrea. Because um, that's sort of the easiest message to, to mobilize people around. But on the other hand, in the absence of these ideologies, what often binds these groups together ultimately really is this ethno-cultural uh, identities. Um, in Liberia, it's often these groups that are um, outgroups from power structures. The Americo-Liberians, who are the descendants of American slaves who moved over to Liberia and became sort of the ruling power structure, uh, Pretty much throughout their history from the, the 1830s to the 1990s, and some would argue continue to be. Um, mm. it's, it's these specific sort of hinterland groups that have been kept out of the development and out of the power structure that have sort of the shared identity and grievance that really form um, initial armed groups that spark off the, these, these civil wars. And it's kind of what helps keep them together. Interesting. Yeah. Um, you know, it's curious to me, you know, so often we when we talk about the Cold War, specifically when, you know, you're kind of talking about it in the context of a textbook or uh, high school history class, you know, it's so much about what the Soviet Union and America did to the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was interesting to me how you talked about how these African leaders in the post-colonial realm used these ideologies very cynically, right? And were actually kind of deploying their agency in reference to the Cold War struggle to their own ends rather than kind of acting out uh, Cold War ideologies placed on them by the Soviet Union or the United States. Oh, yes. And in fact, um, one of the things that we often joke about is uh, we call it the the self-fulfilling prophecy of communism amongst these sort of anti-colonial groups, where you would have groups um, uh, such as uh, the ANC in South Africa, such as um, uh, uh, the the MPLA, such as uh, Frelimo and the like, who maybe already had several Marxist elements, but initially really tried making a pitch to, in many cases, the Western world, saying, hey, we want to be free. We are going to fight for our freedom. Please help us. Um, due to Cold War dynamics, they, they often were sort of rebuffed on that. But when being mm -hmm. asked, well, what do you want? They would say, well, we want to take the land back and give it to the people, because um, these are nationalist fronts. They, they want African rule over what, in this case, are often settler states, uh, Angola, Mozambique, uh, Rhodesia, soon to be Zimbabwe, and, uh, mm -hmm. and South Africa. 
And this immediately set off alarm bells of, wait, you're going to confiscate private property and, and redistribute it to the masses? Oh, well, this sounds like, you know, th- this sounds like communism. And so, of course, where else do they have to turn for, for economic or, 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 uh, or, or military help in these struggles? Um, which isn't to say that there wasn't already sympathy towards that, that sort of thing, but where we begin seeing either what we now see is an affinity for a lot of African states for China and that sort of thing kind of has the roots in, in sort of who they saw was willing to help them outside of a rigid ideological straitjacket. Right. So the player character in Far Cry 2 is a foreign mercenary hired to eliminate an American arms dealer named the Jackal. And there's no restriction on the player character's activities. Uh, They can use any means at their disposal to achieve their objective. And this includes assassination missions and arms dealing, etc. And I'm wondering, can you give us a sense of the role that mercenaries and other private military contractors have played in post-colonial African conflicts? Oh yes, and this is a this is a fascinating question because if anything, Africa specifically in in the 1960s became sort of the the proving ground, or or that where where sort of the idea of the mercenary was resuscitated. Mm-hmm. Um, it had fallen into disfavor in uh, in in the ni- in the 19th century into the 20th, especially with the rise of sort of European uh, uh, nationalism, where it really was this is about having militaries under a state control but the thing is is as mo- is upon independence uh, with the with the end of colonialism in a lot of these states their militaries well there were several flaws that that these these militaries they inherited had in many cases they had often been undertrained underarmed because they were intended to be more of a gendarmerie than a, a national military mm-hmm. um, beyond that most of the colonial nations, actually uh, recruited along ethnic lines um, to where in Kenya you have most of the military being uh, recruited from the Kamba, who are seen as a, a as an inherently martial race, um, which is sort of an, an, ideolo- an ideology that Britain has imported from India, that there's some ethnic groups within their colonial territories that are just naturally better fighters and more amenable to discipline and this and that. Right. And this sort of becomes a, a chicken and the egg thing as it goes on of, well, these groups are often given um, uh, definitely social advancement, better material conditions. And so it, it helps spur this identity, but it also separates them from, from the rest of sort of the population of these colonies. And when independence comes, suddenly they are intended to be a national military um, for, for, a, for a population that honestly, probably up until five minutes before independence, they were involved in suppressing. <laughs> um, beginning in the 1960s, we see a wave of, of what's often called Praetorian activity, of mm-hmm. coups, of mutinies, of these sorts of things, with the, the one that really hits the world stage being the, the opening stages of what's called the Congo crisis. Um, suddenly, this right in the heart of Africa, where there is copper, where there is uranium, this is where the, the uranium for the, the atomic bombs the US, the US dropped are from, um, and, and a, you know, uh, it's just seen as sort of this central part of Africa, especially to a, a sort of uneducated larger populace, suddenly has everything go wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the UN intervenes, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that uh, a little bit later, I'm certain, and begins trying to kind of patch all this together. But 
rebellions keep popping up. Um, Lumumba is actually arrested and then assassinated. And so some of his loyalists start a rebellion in the northeast of the country, calling themselves Simbas, which is uh, 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 Swahili, uh, key Swahili for lions. For those of you that, that are uh, aware of the Lion King, this is where they got his name. <laughs> um, but um, throughout this, uh, there's just ongoing chaos. But the United States, who's very aware of, of Cold War dynamics, is both afraid that leftist governments are going to take over, but also very aware of their growing commitments around the globe, don't necessarily want to get involved in, well, in the Congo. It is a, a giant question mark, and, and they, just, they just don't really know initially what to do. And so they, they hit upon a bit of a scheme. Um, Katanga had, had initially hired a series of Belgian and larger European and South, uh, and South African mercenaries to help train and, and kind of bolster their military. Katanga now had been brought back into the fold. The Congo, now under uh, uh, initially uh, Moist Chombe, but then, uh, uh, then, Joseph Desert, uh, then, then Joseph Mobutu, soon to be Mobutu Seseko. Uh, say, well, okay, our military is not ready to take on all of these, uh, not ready to take on all of these rebellions, specifically the Simba rebellion. Uh, on top of that, uh, it looks like they're getting communist aid. At this point, Che Guevara is actually operating in the country, uh, mm -hmm. although no one no really knows it at the time. And there's a lot of worries. And there's the question of how do we actually quell this? And mm -hmm. uh, Chombe and then Mobutu actually basically tracked down the mercenaries that had held Katanga uh, independent for, for far longer than it probably should have, uh, and just hire them all up. And, and then uh, basically use a, a combination of Belgian troops and mercenaries to, to crush the, the rebellions in the Eastern Congo, which they, they do very quickly, uh, perhaps even far faster than they expected. Well, suddenly this this propels this mythology of the mercenary, these soldiers of fortune who are traveling across the globe to help crush these these communist insurgencies. But beyond that, sort of as you guys discussed in the uh, the Black Ops one and two discussion, there's this air of romance around it, right? Yes. Um, and and so these and these men who are admittedly South African, Belgian, British. Um, are, are suddenly popping up out of nowhere and crushing these, what are being very depicted by the Western press as these savage, unknowable uh, uh, revolts. So there's, there's a lot of racialized rhetoric around this as well. Um, mm -hmm. And so this, but this propels the mercenaries back into the, the front and center stage. And this is suddenly a, an it suddenly seems like the golden opportunity. This is how we solve the problems on the continent. We help them hire these uh, European troops who that then can obviously smash down these irregular crazy backwards rebellions um mm -hmm. and then you add on of course the air of romance you end up with uh books being written about them both uh, uh memoirs like mad mike whore's uh, uh congo mercenary which let's just say he probably takes some liberties in there but but also um uh several popular books um uh dogs of war and the like and this Africa becomes the playground for the mercenaries for a while. Right. It seems like the solution. Unfortunately, this kind of comes to a halt by the time by the 1980s. Uh, there's a series of revolts, actually, of Mobutu's mercenaries uh, in the, the late 60s who kind of want to make the Eastern Congo into their own fiefdom. Elsewhere where they're deployed, they're, they're involved in very 
unsavory activities. It's no longer crushing communists. It's trying to overthrow a variety of, of governments who, who might may or may not be friendly. Um, and finally, actually, a series of, of U.S. Of, of Americans are caught essentially trying to act as mercenaries in the Angolan conflict. And, and this causes a bit of an international incident, and this is cracked down on. Mm-hmm. And, and so for, for a while, although mer- in the 60s to the 80s, mercenaries are seen as this perfect solution to where we can stay out of Africa, but still determine how many of its conflicts go uh, by helping them get soldiers that, that also tend to be, as much as I hate to say it, ideologically reliable, or at least be paid enough to where they don't care. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it also, you know, it, it, they also have this sort of plausible deniability in some cases, but unfortunately, then they generally show themselves to be regularly unreliable or get caught in very tangled uh, diplomatic situations. Interestingly enough, though, although that goes away in the 1980s, uh, for the most part, um, obviously, there's still some being hired in onesies, twosies as advisors and helpers and this and that. Um some figures such as Bob Assels is sort of a, a, a fix-it man for uh, for uh, Idi Amin in Uganda and the like. This, this for the most part, kind of falls underneath the table and the idea kind of goes into discredit. But interestingly enough, then in the post-Cold War moment, um, when you have these states collapsing, when you have these ragged wars, well, there's sort of the bright idea again of, wait a minute, we have a lot of uh, a lot of soldiers, specifically in many cases, um, soldiers that had fought for apartheid South Africa, who mm-hmm. now sort of feel like uh, soldiers without a country, um, who are who are selling their services and often are, are very effective, if somewhat terrifying and, and sometimes amoral soldiers, and they kind of step back onto the stage with the uh, conflicts in Sierra Leone and Liberia, um, executive outcomes, which is a, a South African firm for the most part. Uh, uh, intervenes in those. Um, they often serve both as sort of special forces for for the the governments or well, quote unquote, governments in in some of these conflicts. They also serve to bring in specialized um, skills that that often the national militaries don't have. They serve as helicopter pilots and things like that, pilot gunships. And suddenly, this this idea has some cash has has some some legs again. Because uh, they often are crushing these very irregular revolts, because these are very well trained and, and well experienced soldiers, and so you see firms like Sandline International, DynCorp, Executive Outcomes, really suddenly popping up in these conflicts. And although it never quite hits the sort of savior moment again, it at least kind of puts them back at the table, and it's kind of continued to the present day. Um, mm-hmm. And we still see ideas like privatizing Afghanistan pop up again, and that's. Yeah. Largely because uh, uh, these sort of actions show that in the developing world, if you're willing to kind of not look too closely under the hood, there's soldiers out there that'll that'll work for money as opposed to some sort of national need. Yeah. Um, But I would say that for the most part, most of these have sort of no longer taken on um, frontline combat duties, mostly Mm -hmm. because that's still seen as as sort of a, a. gray zone since the Liberian and Sierra Leone conflicts, but instead now are also being seen in many cases as a, a specialized training service. Um, mm-hmm. For example, the, the new Liberian military after the civil wars needed specific trainers um, to, to help kind of build that military back. And Liberia does not have, because of its history, a lot of connections with, say, a European colonial power. They have one with 
the United States. And so what ends up happening instead is there is that uh, the Liberian government uh, hires DynCorp. Since then, have essentially functioned as um, essentially trainers and advisors in building this military. And now this mm. this model's been pushed uh, in a couple places, including by a, including in a report by Sean McFate, who had worked for DynCorp and now actually uh, 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 works for I believe one of the think tanks in DC. So I mean the. Right. They're they're still around. Um, they work in onesies, twosies. They certainly were involved in these ragged conflicts, like we like we're seeing in Far Cry Two. Uh, but I would say that generally not quite so much as uh, any in this role anymore. On the ground, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, it's it's interesting to me. You know, the uh, narrative you lay out, uh, you know, is familiar to me, especially the celebration of mercenaries during the late '60s through the early '80s, um, and it, it always fascinated me how much that narrative. Uh, really matched up with the celebration of empire and imperialism in general during the late 19th century, right? This is something that's for the good of Africa uh, in general. Uh, but one of the great things about Far Cry 2 is it, you know, it pulls no punches. It basically delivers the message that you are a despicable person as a mercenary. You are working with other mercenaries who are despicable people and willing to do anything. Uh, and that the whole, you know, structure of the game uh, and attempting to end the civil war is actually being hindered by your presence, right? So it's it's very upfront about their, you know, the developers' opinion about mercenaries and their operations. Oh yes, and 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 while we continue seeing, as you say, this sort of this is about bringing you know a conflict to a close. These are about bringing professional soldiers where there are none, and that sort of mm-hmm. thing. Um, you know, this is, I would say the United States generally got a little bit more of a, of a reality check on that. And one that, that, that flows a little bit closer to Far Cry's message with, uh, our experiences with Blackwater in, in Iraq, yes. for example. Yes. Um, and, and of course now, of course they no longer are calling themselves Blackwater. They were Zay and then Academy or Academy then Zay. And so, I mean, this is definitely one of those things where there's rhetoric, there is PR, um, especially as much as they say it. If you read, uh, uh, Mike Hoare's books, I think he's written four or five autobiographies or memoirs at this point. And they very much lean on this sort of return to civilization as embodied by these efforts, by these European troops. And yeah. that's that's really good PR. But I, I think what we've seen, uh, again, uh, uh, behind the curtain a little bit more, uh, matches a little bit more of what Far Cry 2 wants. Now, one, one last sort of little uh, irony, if you will, is whereas the 60s through the 80s became the heyday of the mercenary in Africa, uh, we may actually be seeing a slight reversal of that. There had been a, an Economist article a little bit ago where one of the great, one of the single largest exports from Uganda at the moment actually is young military-aged men mm. who are being signed up by private military contractors and private security contractors to serve as soldiers and guards and, and bodyguards and the like. Uh, in these various sort of global conflicts we now have going on. So as where uh, Africa used to be a destination for mercenaries, it now may be uh, the source. Wow. (laughs) It goes around, comes around, I suppose. Uh, Exactly. Well, uh, Far Cry 2 is is famous for forcing players to deal with numerous environmental obstacles, uh, including elements like rain and fire, as well as diseases like malaria. You also have to deal with weapons jams, which occur with enemy weapons and high-use weapons alike. 
Can you give us a sense of the importance of environmental obstacles in African conflicts and also maybe spend some time talking about the importance of diseases as well uh, with regard to African conflicts in the past? One of the many reasons, but, but definitely one of the prime ones why colonization takes longer to really get rolling in Africa is actually the environmental difficulty, in particular diseases. Um, uh, diseases like malaria, trypanosomiasis, um, cholera, and the like actually take a, take a huge toll on, on European visitors into Africa to begin with. It's seen initially as a very pestilential place. And mm-hmm. it's not really until the, the discovery of quinine and its role in suppressing malaria or, or preventing malaria that we really see deep penetration by Europeans into the into large parts of the continent. Part of the reason that you see, for example, South Africa colonized as early as the 1600s, and yet we don't see, say, for example, the Belgian Congo until the 1870s, is because South Africa is in a temperate zone. Um, there's it is not a malarial zone because of that. There's not the insects. There's there's not necessarily the disease itself. And so Europeans who who are very susceptible to this disease can survive there and live there for for quite easily. Um, once you begin moving more towards kind of the central Africa, uh, suddenly that at least the disease vectors become much more manifold and, mm-hmm. and cause much greater difficulties. And not just simply for um, Europeans, but also. Uh, uh, trypanosomiasis and the like carried by uh, the tsetse fly uh, just takes a horrific toll on on pack animals like like mm. donkeys, like oxen, like horses. And so, what's often seen as kind of force multipliers for the the transport of European goods, services, and, and just people are are ground to a halt. And so, this very much slows down colonization. Now, it doesn't stop it as as modern as medicine sort of moves along, they're able to kind of deal with this more often. There's never really an easy solution for, for livestock and the like in, in Central Africa. But, but people, thanks to anti-malarials like you see in the game, can, can survive there just fine as long as they take them. Uh, whenever I go over, I take uh, malarone every day. Now, it's interesting, though, because then this creates a very, very, very unique dynamic within conflicts. Number one, most cavalry just doesn't exist in, in East and Central Africa. In, in some areas of the Horn, where the elevation's high enough, uh, the tsetse fly doesn't exist, so you can have that. But uh, uh, when the, say during the First World War, when they tried deploying South African cavalry to, to Tanganyika, now Tanzania, they lose all of their horses very, very quickly. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, beyond that, the even with things like anti-malarials, just the the amount of diseases that the Europeans are not prepared for just causes massive, massive attrition. Uh, so one of the English units, the 25th Royal Fusiliers, if I remember correctly, loses something like 80% of their strength um, within the first year, and most of those are not battle casualties. That's wow. that's just yeah. attrition. Uh, and, and in many cases, many of the the men that then actually subsequently recover don't recover enough to then take part in the fighting again. This, of course, also is exacerbated often by um, inadequate infrastructure to where, say, a war in Western Europe, you've got well-traveled roads, you've got... Uh, uh, in many cases, rail lines, you've got canals and all that. Those simply don't, in many cases, exist in parts of Africa. This is part of the larger underdevelopment of the continent during uh, during the colonial era. 
what what large scale roads and rail lines don't exist to connect areas within the continent. They exist to connect areas in the continent to ports on the coast for the extraction and exportation of 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 commodities. Right. And so and so the environment between diseases, between actual infrastructure, really, really um, both makes large scale conflict very difficult to coordinate and wage, but also means that in many cases, the most lethal part of the conflict is the environment itself. And I don't Mm. mean that in some sort of, you know, oh, there's a wild kingdom and lions are going to get you. (laughs) I mean that that the thing is, is there's large areas where there is not necessarily a lot of food and potable water, where there are disease vectors and the like, to where even in the present day during the uh, Second Congo War, which ran from 1998 to 2003, uh, we see a massive death toll. Um, There's current arguments placing it anywhere between 2.6 and 5.4 million dead. Mm. Um, That's million with an M. And I realize that's a wide variance. There's a variety of reasons for that. But out of those, less than a million of those deaths are considered violent deaths in combat. That that means you're talking 1.6 million to approximately... 4.4 4.4 million are mostly dead from malnutrition and diseases because they are most of the time displaced persons who have been forced out of their homes into inhospitable environments. Right. Wow. Yeah. You know, one of the remarkable things about this game, and you know, maybe we can use this to lead into the next question, uh, is the fact that there isn't much in the game, in the game setting, besides mercenaries and the factions. Um, So I'm thinking in particular of the fact that there are no civilians uh, in this game. Now, there's kind of consistent reference made to displaced people. Uh, There's a mechanic in the game where you can help religious leaders, doctors, uh, with aiding these displaced people in return for malarial medicine. But remarkably, you never really run into civilians, never where you have to fighting civilians or avoiding fighting civilians or shooting civilians. Uh, And I'm just wondering, you know, can you give us a sense of the importance of the issue of displaced people, of refugees in post-colonial wars in Africa? Oh, goodness, yes. Um, I would say, and this is, again, solely my own opinion, but the issue of displaced persons is the central issue of all of these conflicts, of every single one of them. Um, whether it is the creation of massive death tolls as, as they're fleeing war zones, like we just talked about in the Congo War, um, and these are mostly innocent people. These are these are are the elderly. These are women. These are children. These are uh, 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 folks with um, disabilities that that cannot be necessarily drafted into a fight, or sometimes just people that just this is not their war. The other piece out of this is this is these often these populations often then become the engines for the next conflict. So, for example, during the uh, the Rwandan genocide, for example, Hutu-led government enact- that begins the genocide. Uh, Eight hundred thousand are killed in a very short amount of time. Uh, in response, a, a Tutsi-led force, uh, a guerrilla force that's been in mostly based in Uganda, pushes into the country and forces them out. Uh, this is the the Rwandan Patriotic Front, which is now mm-hmm. the official government of Rwanda. But the thing is, is there's a large, large group of of Hutus, who many have not taken part in the genocide, many perhaps are genocide adjacent, and some have taken part, but all of them are now fleeing Rwanda 
in fear of reprisals from the RPF government that's coming. Mm-hmm. Those populations, both those who had been genocidaires and then those who are simply afraid of being labeled genocidaires, then are displaced into the eastern Congo, into a, a variety of, of refugee camps that are really badly taken, both badly taken care of and then in many cases badly taken advantage of. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have uh, military leaders, and this is chronicled largely in Jason Stearns's book, Dancing in the Glory of Monsters, which is just fantastic, um, where you have uh, former military leaders really kind of upping the, the, the population counts in these camps so that they can get additional food and resources. You have folks who originally had not necessarily been involved in any of the political radicalization, but who have now been forced out of their, uh, out of what they see as their home and seeing themselves lose property and who now do get involved. Um, And this ends up with these groups then in many cases forming their own strong insurgency who then begin raiding into Rwanda which then provokes a, a Rwandan response to to go after those militants in the camps, right? And and this then kicks off the the Congo Wars. Um, mm-hmm. And so these these displaced persons, both a, are often the source of the vast majority of 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 the in many cases innocent deaths in these conflicts. They then also then become the epicenter for the next round of violence. Mm. Yeah, I think you know. Anybody who's paying attention to the news would be aware of that kind of issue related to either the Syrian civil war uh, or the current civil unrest going on in Venezuela right now. Um, and, you know, related to that issue, you know, an important subtext of Far Cry 2 is the lack of international awareness or intervention, right? There's no UN peacekeepers in the area. There's not mention of how they're helping the civilian population. And it made me wonder, you know, historically speaking, what has been the role of the international community, international organizations like the United Nations in African conflicts? And what sort of factors determine whether or not there will be international aid in these sorts of situations? What does it take uh, traditionally uh, for that sort of aid to arrive? Well, this is a this is a fascinating question, and it's one that that again shows a real historical evolution throughout this period. During the during the nineteen sixties, with independence coming again, going back to the Congo uh, the Congo crisis, the United Nations this is they see this as their first real test um, mm-hmm. to step in and and try to deal with this sort of disintegrating state, and they initially try to play sort of an even handed peacekeeper. But the thing is, is the United Nations is not a monolithic group. Um, the peacekeeping forces offered to them are, are from nations that often have their own agenda. Most notably, you have, for example, the Ghanaian troops that are offered that that very notably kind of take the side of Patrice Lumumba in his sort of power struggle with Kasavubu. They're still trying to figure out, okay, well, how do we do this? How do we create a unified sort of idea uh, and make these these peacekeeping forces hue to it? And beyond that, where do we where do we draw the line in operations? You've got, for example, uh, Katanga seceding, and and the, the Congolese government turns around and says, "Hey, they're seceding. You need to help us bring them back." Mm-hmm. And the United Nations has no idea whether they have a mandate to do that. They they try basically putting peacekeeper forces into Kasai to try to try to uh, fix it, to try to keep different warring groups away from one another. This often leads into informally aggressive responses. And ultimately, the, the 
the United Nations, which is trying to be as neutral as possible, is really pulled into the greater currents of the Cold War in Africa, The especially since Katanga is being supported by um, the Central African Federation. It's being supported, uh, which are the, the Rhodesias at the time and, and Nyasaland, now Malawi. Uh, South Africa, obviously, is, is much more interested in having a, a capitalist Belgian slash Western friendly Katanga than than it being absorbed into what they see as a communist friendly government in in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. So there's a lot of of sort of interventions here and there. With uh, eventually the Secretary General, uh, who at the time was was already trying to be a little bit more aggressive about this, um, Dag Hammarskjöld, um, his well he's trying to broker a ceasefire. His plane is actually well. His plane crashes over northern Rhodesia, now Zambia. Um, mm. Interestingly enough, there had always been sort of larger conspiracy theories that he was shot down by a mercenary mm. pilot or by like a South African pilot or something. These had always kind of been poo-pooed. But it's, in the last couple of years, there's been several several pieces that have come out, a book, Who Killed Dag Hjammerskjold? Uh, and now actually several articles have come out um, that it really does look like there was some significant... Um, intervention by by sort of these very staunch conservative western centric powers to actually assassinate the secretary general of of the united nations but we are again this is these are still largely i mean there's these are very good and interesting arguments and i would say they have some good strong evidence with them and more seems to be emerging but again these are still sort of allegations right this, on the other hand, enrages the United Nations, and they actually, for the first time, authorize aggressive military maneuvers. They they literally launch an offensive against Katanga and using their, their various national forces, uh, crush the Katangan state and kind of reintegrate it back into the, uh, into the Congo. But mm-hmm. at this point, suddenly there's the big question of, whoa, is this what the United Nations is supposed to be doing? <laughs> um this seems to really be validating a lot of the critiques of this is an aggressive one world government sort of organization. Um, and at this point, the United Nations sort of takes a step back uh, uh, for a variety of reasons and really begins focusing on a lot more of humanitarian intervention. And so most of what we'll see in the next decades of conflict um, up through the 90s will be when United Nations peacekeepers are deployed. They really are intended to not be aggressive in any way. You see, in mm-hmm. fact, um, several critiques of that in, say, Black Hawk Down, where it's, well, you know, why aren't the United Nations intervening to do this? Well, that's because their hands are relatively tied, even the, the sort of peacekeeping forces they have with them. Um, but the vast majority of their efforts are going towards um, like the High Commission for Refugees, which is there to to really kind of support these these massive groups of displaced folks, like we've been talking about, yeah. um, and they've generally kind of continued along that path since. Now there is one notable exception recently, and that would be again in the Congo, where um, in the uh, in the two thousands with the M twenty three rebellion after the the Second Congo War ended peacekeepers in the east were under continual sort of attack by this group the drc was not able to really uh, its military was not necessarily able to defeat this m23 rebellion um, for a variety of reasons 
And so the United Nations actually finally authorized what they called the Force Intervention Brigade, which actually was generally a mixed force of mostly Tanzanians and South Africans, if I remember correctly, who actually then undertake offensive operations again. And, and mm. between that and, and kind of a severing of any sort of external support for M23, this sort of puts the kibosh on that group for a while, although they're still kind of floating around. Mm-hmm. Now, with the what sort of factors determine intervention or aid, A, there generally needs to be kind of an ask, um, but it, in many cases, this this can come from either vulnerable populations, it can come from the, the government themselves, that sort of thing. And, and then, in many cases, the type of response follows based on what the issue is. Again, humanitarian response tends to be one of the one of the major kind of roles of the UN now. Um, sometimes uh, uh, help in sort of reestablishing or reinforcing civil society. So, as you mentioned in the game, you're helping sort of church leaders and, and civil society yeah. leaders. That's sort of where uh, they, they look to try to try to help out with that. Um, although there's recently been some some much more interesting and nuanced critiques of these approaches, um, Severin Atesser's um, Peaceland, which is a, a sort of larger scholarly critique of UN interventions, of, of where they sort of succeed and fail, and, and where often things seem to kind of not necessarily link, link up in sort of a bottom-up method that would be effective. Uh, it's it's a very good, very nuanced discussion of it. Um, uh, the factors just tend to be along the lines of either uh, a formal request along with a need or even just a perceived need of, of a just sort of humanitarian disaster oncoming. Right. Um, now, the interestingly enough, at least on, on the continent of Africa, there has been increasingly a desire and occasional effective use to use either regional or continental organizations, either on their own or in concert with the United Nations help. Um, mm. And so uh, in Liberia and Sierra Leone, we see uh, ECOWAS, the Economic Community of West African States, actually deploys its peacekeeping forces. Uh, that would be ECOMOG, the, the, the ECOWAS ceasefire monitoring group. And, and that's largely Nigerian troops, but with, with Ghanaians and, and, uh, and several other uh, West African nations. What we're also seeing is things like, uh, is the African Union increasingly stepping up, and sometimes on its own, uh, as, uh, Amazon, the, the, the African Union military mission to Somalia, or sometimes uh, in uh, concert or aid with the United Nations. And so there's... Mm increasingly a call for sort of African solutions for African problems and, and where they have the capacity, they, they try to do so. Although that's sort of met its own mixed results. But in many cases, these also are very difficult problems they're facing down. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm afraid we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, that does it for today's episode. Charlie, thank you so much for joining oh, us on the show. Oh, this was an incredible pleasure. I can only hope that uh, at some point someone makes another video game with Africa as a setting and I can join you again. Great. Well, we'll look forward to that. And my thanks also go out to our patrons on Patreon uh, who continue to support History Respawn. If you enjoy our work here at History Respawn and are interested in supporting us, please go to www.patreon.com forward slash History Respawn. That's all for today's episode. Until next time, goodbye.